so why am I an idiot? Why didn't I just not ask him to preach this so I could just be comfortably sitting in a pew uh, right now? I, I don't know. But um, I, I was listening to a I was listening to a scholar talk about this passage, and he said, you know, <laughs> scholars love to disagree about things in the Bible, and uh, also scholars, like, there are many inter- interpretations of this passage as there, are, as there are scholars, but the one thing they agree on is this is one of the most, this is, like, the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Awesome. But here's what I love about it, is the more, as I, the more I was reading it, while the particularities of what Peter is saying are obscure, his main point is very clear. And so that's what we're going to primarily focus on, is what, what's Peter's main point here, which is super clear. That's good news. And so what Peter's main point here in this passage is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world for how you live in the present day. That's it. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference for how you live in the present day. And remember, Peter's writing to people who are suffering, and and they're suffering not in spite of the fact that they follow Jesus, but because of the fact that they follow Jesus. And when you're suffering, what you don't need is, you know, lofty ivory tower theology. What you need is, is real help. And Peter's saying that, like, that's the thing, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just this historical reality that you believe in or intellectually assent to, but it is a present power that enables you to live in the present. And so, uh, there's, there's lots in here, but let's just trim it down to two things that we see here about how the death of Christ makes all the difference in the world. And we'll look at it through these lines. First, we'll see the finality of the death of Christ. And number two, uh, we will look at the victory of the death of Christ. So first, the finality of his death. And then number two, the victory of his death. And how do these things make a difference in how we live, you know, in our own life, and our relationships, and so forth. Okay, so uh, first, number one, the finality of Christ's death. So, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that a wonderful gospel pillow? Yeah, I feel like I could just rest on that verse all day. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's a lot in here, but there's one word that was resounding off of the pages as I was reading this reading it this week and I I couldn't let it escape escape me and that's the word once once for Christ suffered once for sins do you understand the difference that that makes that word once no you don't and neither do I but I want us to treasure it a little bit more this evening this wonderful word once and one of the ways to clarify this or to make it more clear is to think about the difference between Roman Catholic churches and Protestant churches and as, as I say this, I want to be very clear, like we really do our best here tonight to not highlight the differences between our church and other denominations or, you know, us and in, 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 in a church like the Roman Catholic Church, for example. But here it's, it's actually going to be very worthwhile for us to look at this difference. And I have a number of Roman Catholic friends. I've learned a lot from a number of Roman Catholic theologians, and I plan to continue to do so. And there's a lot of commonalities that Protestants and Catholics hold. So, for example, We both agree that God is holy. We both agree that wholeness of life is only found through communion with God. We both agree, Protestant and Catholic churches, that the only way to know God is through Jesus, who's God himself, come to live, die, and rise again for our sins. We all agree on all these things. But one of the key differences that that marks this distinction between Roman Catholics and, and Protestants is, okay, it's through Christ that you know God, but 
how do you lay a hold of the saving benefits of Christ? Like, how does what Christ did come into your life? And what Roman Catholics say is, is it's your faith in Jesus plus something. So it's your faith in Jesus, your belief in him, plus good things you do. It's your faith in Jesus plus the sacraments. So going to church, taking the Lord's Supper, baptism, like these things actually contribute to your salvation and your relationship with Jesus Christ. What Protestants say, it, say is it's faith plus nothing. because It's Christ and Christ alone through which you're brought into relationship with God. And so here's one of the ways this plays out practically. What Roman Catholics believe is when you take the Lord's Supper, for example, when you approach the table, what they say happens is when you, when you go to the table, there's, a, there's a, not even a sense. Like what actually happens is the grace of Christ is literally infused into you. And so that's why they believe that when you take the bread and, and the wine, they actually become like literally Christ's body and blood that are sacrificed anew every time, every time you approach the table. And the reason they, they believe this is because because you continue to sin, because you continue to fall short, you need to receive salvation again and again. And so Christ needs to be sacrificed anew. He needs to be sacrificed afresh so that he can pay for you each time is what they think takes place. But Protestants, on the other hand, have always said no, because Christ, you know, in many places, but one place you see it clearly is on the cross. What, were, what was one of the phrases he, uses, he used on the cross? And it was, it is finished. And what he meant by that on the cross, it is finished, is that everything that was, that was required to pay for your sin, to conquer death on your behalf, to bring you into communion with God, has taken place once, right now, once for all. And once you cling hold of me by faith, all that is mine is yours. So it's not faith plus other things. It's just faith and faith alone through Christ's work. And so... Here's the difference, for example, when you approach the Lord, when you approach the table, and we're going to do this tonight, you're not coming to receive salvation anew because you've sinned and now you're guilty again. You're not coming to renew your salvation. What you're coming to renew is your intimacy. You're, you're not coming to say, oh God, please take me back. You're coming to enjoy the relationship that invigorates you and replenishes you and, and pl replenishes you and gives you the joy by which you live. Does that make a difference? That makes all the difference. So when you pray, it's not, oh, God, I'm going to go pray before you and plead with you to take me back. It's no, now you get to go pray and rejoice in the fact that God has never left you in the first place. When you go to church, it's not, OK, I'm going to go to church because there's this quid pro quo thing going on where if I go to church, then God will make my week a little better. Now you go, God, I can't wait to go to church to experience you in a, in a unique way and to, you know, see all these hooligans and misfit, misfits that you've saved and brought into your family as well. It changes everything. Because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, this affects everything, but let's think through a very, some very practical ways that this impacts your life. Because, remember, a couple weeks ago we looked at, like, one of the main ways that God grows you and uses you isn't by calling you to extraordinary things, but he's calling you to be faithful and pursue godliness in the mundane and through that he accomplishes extraordinary things. Similar to this principle, by applying the gospel, this Christ suffered once to your daily life is what makes all the difference. So let's think through a, a couple things. So one would be, think about your own devotional life, like your, your prayer life, your Bible reading. And for some of you, you may not realize this is what's going on, but there's a sense where, you know, you, 
you mess up somehow or you sin or you fall into a, you fall into a pattern and you rather than running toward God, you start to walk away because when you think about, you know, shutting off your phone and all these things and going before the holy God, it's like the sense of I already know I'm guilty. Why do I need to go before the cosmic judge who's just going to rub in my face that I haven't lived up to his character this week? And if you ask that question, the answer is to ask a question in return, and that's one way I heard it put is, would a father or mother who sees their child suffocating want their child to reluctantly draw on the oxygen tank by which they're going to receive life and breath into their lungs? And it's the same way when you go to God. Going to God, when you're in despair, when you've fallen, isn't a barrier to happiness. It's the means by which you receive it from him because you're already his. Because Christ suffered once. You don't have to go and otherwise you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, he suffered for the righteous. So I have to get myself righteous again before I, I go to him. But you're missing the complete point of what Peter's saying. Okay, so it can manifest in that way, which is very overtly religious. But it also takes more... Um, non-religious expressions as well. And here's one way that it may play out. Think about why you work the way you do. And for some of you, there is a restlessness under your work because you're trying to obtain a, a verdict you know, that says you are enough, you are competent, I'm proud of you. And so you're not working. There's a huge difference between working out of the verdict you've already been given in Christ you're my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, and working to try to obtain a verdict. So this could be a well done from your peers. It could be a well done from your boss. It could be trying to earn approval maybe from a parent who's never told you, great job. And while the approval of your peers or a boss or a parent, my goodness, does that make a massive difference in who you are? Even the best affirmation from a parent or a colleague can't keep your soul together. And the way that looking at your risen king, as he tells you, I am so proud of you. Not because you earned your way to me, but just because I'm so happy that you're my daughter. I'm just so happy you're my son. That changes everything about how, you, how and why you do everything. Okay, num num number three, how does this play out? hopefully those two things were encouraging. This one's a little bit more challenging is some of you may have a hard time. Some of you may have or have a very hard time keeping short accounts. So when somebody wrongs you or betrays your trust, it's over. Or at best, you, they're in your debt is the attitude you carry. And, you know, the only way you can keep someone in your debt is by feeling superior to them. But the only way you can do that and I get that this is hard, but the only way that you can hold something over someone's head and hold a long account instead of a short account, think about when you are doing that, you're doing the exact opposite of what Christ did for you. Because it's when you were unrighteous that Christ suffered once for you to bring you to God. And you know, I was reading the other day, I was reading this article by a public intellectual, and he was talking about the woke movement, but this applies to people on, on both sides of the aisle. He was saying, you know, it's interesting Something I'm noticing is uh, people, even a lot of people who say they don't believe in God, use religious categories to throw at other people. So in our current culture, like you see language of, you know, guilt and people need to atone 
for their sins or atone for, for something they've done or a position they've had that's wrong. And so what happens is when somebody makes a blunder, and this can be on Twitter, it can be something that is just, you know, brought to light. It could be something from 15 years ago. What happens, right, is the mob is the righteous party who then comes after the unrighteous one and says, we're righteous, you're unrighteous, and you need to pay. But you know what Jesus Christ did is he was the righteous one, and he looked at us, the, right, the unrighteous, and he said, I'm righteous, you're unrighteous, and I'll pay. I'll pay the debt. I'll go to the cross. And what I'm not saying is that when, when people do horrible things, should, should they repent and ask for, for forgiveness? Absolutely. But there is a cultural tide now to where we bolster our sense of like, self-worth and superiority by either in our you know, peer group who thinks like us or online by sharing a snarky meme or whatever it may be, by condemning the, the other as unrighteous because I'm the righteous. But what this world needs, especially from us who are redeemed by the risen king who came for us when we were the unrighteous, is to live completely different in the way we think about and talk about people who are on the other side. And that, that's something beautiful that will draw people toward the gospel. And so Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the finality of Christ's death, right? It happened once, he doesn't have to do it again and again. Next, let's look at the victory of Jesus' death. So let's keep reading. Uh, second half of verse 18. So he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So here's where it gets weird. And you can see why it's confusing, because immediately you have so many questions. So, verse 19, in which Jesus went, where, where did he go? Did he go to hell? Did he go to some alternate dimension? When did he go? Did he go way back in time? Did he go between his death and resurrection? Did he go after his resurrection? He went and proclaimed. Proclaimed what? Come on, Peter. To the spirits in prison. What spirits? Are these non-human spirits? <laughs> are, they, are they human spirits? You can see why people have... And the worst part is we don't have a lot of other places in Scripture we can go to, to fill this unclear passage out. And so here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to go through and parse the 100 different interpretations of this and the pros and cons of each. And I know about 18% of you are very upset right now that I'm not going to do that. The other 82% are like, thank goodness gracious, he's not going to do that. But we're gonna, I'm just going to give you the position I've landed on, albeit I've landed on with a lot of humility because people way smarter than me have different opinions on this. But here's just what, what I've landed on that, that I think can be a faithful reading. And then more importantly, what's the main point Peter's driving home here and what difference does it make, okay? So let's start with that, uh, that part in the end of verse 18, uh, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. Part of why this is confusing is because is, is you ask, is Peter saying, okay, Christ's physical body was put to death, but his spiritual body or his non-physical body was raised and then he was a spirit, kind of like, you know, floated to a prison somewhere, maybe went to an alternate dimension. And I don't think it's saying that you know, like while Jesus was in the grave, that his physical body was there, but then his non-physical body went and did other things. And, and here's why I think that. One, because in the very next section, uh, Peter makes the same contrast in chapter uh, 4, verse 6. 
saying uh, people are judged in the flesh but may live in the spirit. So he's using this flesh-spirit distinction to describe human beings who were always physical, now in the new creation will be physical. But also, even more clear, I think you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about Christ's death and his resurrection, he says, Christ Jesus, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Talking about his physical body both times. And what Paul's referring to there is, so when Christ first took on flesh, he took on, think of this as the realm of the flesh or the realm of human weakness and suffering and limitation. And then when Christ was raised again to new life in the spirit, this means he was raised in the realm of the spirit or the realm of power in new life. Physical body both times, but before, flesh, weak, limited, after in the spirit realm of power, new life. And so just as Christ was risen in this way, so we, when we are raised again, will have completely new bodies with new power and new life. So he's talking about, I, I believe, he's talking about a physical body both times. Let's keep going. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, so who are these spirits in prison? Um, and he says, when, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So Noah, you can read about it in Genesis uh, 6 through 9, essentially, where wickedness is abounding in the earth. God says he's going to judge the earth through a flood. Noah builds an ark, and he calls the people to repent, and if they repent, you know, they can come into the ark and be saved. Everybody except Noah's family refused to repent, and so it was only Noah's family uh, that, that was saved. And so when he says spirits in prison because formerly they did not obey, a number of people think, Okay, these are human beings who didn't obey in the days of Noah, and Christ goes and then proclaims to them after the fact. And here's why I don't think spirits in prison is referring to human beings. Uh, number one, uh, it's as if like they're held in purgatory or something, and then Jesus goes to give them a second chance. One, why would Jesus only give the people in the days of Noah a second chance, right, to like come to him for salvation compared to the billions of people who've lived after Noah? This is just one question to ask. But number two, when Peter says the spirits in prison, prison is never used in the New Testament to talk about a, the place of the human dead. It's always a place to talk about fallen, where fallen angels are kept. So Second Peter and Jude are two places where you can see this very clearly. Number three, spirits in the New Testament, every time it's used, unless explicitly indicated otherwise, refused to, is, uh, refers to non-humans or angels. And then number four, contextually, we always want to look at context. Look at verse 22. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Referring to the demonic realm and dark systems that are, that are at play in our world. And Christ is over those things. And so here's what I, I think he's saying. I mean, we're going to get to the main point in a second. Here's, but this does matter. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's referring to, there was this dreadful incident in the beginning of Genesis 6 where fallen angels come down and they lay with women and they have w with human women and they have children with them and they spread wickedness throughout the earth and this of course goes against God's character and so God judges them and they're imprisoned <coughs> and then so what's happening here is Christ after he's raised in, in, in the realm of the spirit on his way uh, into his ascension he goes to where these spirits are kept in prison and he declares his victory over them he declares that at Calvary, where he was victorious, that means he is victorious over them and any being, you know, demonic or otherwise, that is like them, that tries to keep down those who belong to Jesus, is what Christ is doing here when he's going to proclaim to the spirits in prison. 
And so what is Paul saying here? In short, he's saying Jesus is the man, is what he's saying. Because, and th th here's, here's the point, what's key is when Christ went to the cross, it's not just that by staying there he took care of your personal, individual need for forgiveness, although thank goodness that's what it includes. On the cross, what also happened is that was the definitive moment where Christ was victorious over the entire demonic realm and everything that the fallen world entails. There, there was a, it's as if there was a shift in the world order when Christ went to the cross and hung on where Satan's power was stripped away from him in the sense that Satan's doom was guaranteed to him. And also where Christ now ushers in a, a new world order where you and me and everybody that belongs to him gets to partake in the new creation that he's bringing about. So it's this cosmic thing that Christ accomplished. Why is that such good news? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so what he's saying, baptism, which corresponds to this. This is Noah and the flood and the ark. So baptism, which corresponds to Noah's family in the ark, now saves you. So he's not saying baptism itself saves you. But he's saying, if you keep going, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's why he says not as a removal of dirt from the body, i.e. like moral filth. The act of baptism doesn't save you. But what it is, is it's a picture of your union with Jesus and how he saved you. So just like Noah's family and the ark, right? So when the flood came, God's judgment, they climbed into the ark. And did they like swim really hard and that's how they were saved? No. They took shelter in the ark, and they just passively hung out in the ark as it was lifted up over the waters, and they were saved from the flood. In a similar way, when you hold to Christ through faith, it's not you working really hard to like develop intimacy with God or curry favor with him, but just as the ark took the brunt of the storm, so Christ took the brunt of the storm of God's judgment on the cross. So then in him, now you're saved, and now even the most powerful dark forces in the world, human or demonic, have no sway over you because you are in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? And we're just going to look at, here's one thing it means, and, and it changes everything about how you handle fear. When you think about Christ is utterly dominant over everything. And so, as I was thinking about this, when I was in high school, uh, I wrestled my freshman year, and I, on the wrestling team, uh, we had this guy named Omar on the team. And Omar was, he was 6'3", 230 pounds. He was our heavyweight wrestler. And we called him our secret weapon because he was. Like, most of us weren't that great. But you know, when Omar went into the ring, like, he had utter dominance in the ring. So he'd pin everybody, like, in the, in the first round every time. He looked like that guy, if you've seen the movie Troy, you know, Boagrius, Bo that giant warrior who comes out in the beginning to fight Achilles. He looked like him. I, I'm not joking. Just, like, full of muscle. And for, for whatever reason, Omar liked me. I, I don't know why, but he, he liked me. And I remember this day where an older, bigger guy on the team, he had a problem with me. Like, did he have a problem with me? I don't, I don't know. He, he had a problem with me. I'm kidding, for those of you who are new. But so he had a problem, and he, he comes up to me to start bullying me. And Omar was nearby, and he overheard, he overheard what was happening. And he steps in between me and the other kid, and he says, if you have a problem with Steve, you have a problem with me. And you can bet that kid tucked his tail and walked away. Oh, you can tuck me when I'm behind Omar. But 
what's the point? Because I was united with Omar, people or things that were more powerful than me couldn't actually touch me. And so what Paul is saying here is if you are clinging to Christ by faith, you do not need to fear. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to have a sense of dread. You do not need to have a sense of terror about anything that assails you in this life or the next. Why? Because Christ is dominant over everything. Christ reigns over darkness. Christ reigns over demons. Christ reigns over evil systems. Christ reigns over any uncertainty in your life. And so what's amazing about what Peter is saying is he's saying it's not that the things that you fear aren't real. Like your fear of rejection or a fear of being alone or financial fears you have or relationship fears you have or fears about a loved one or your health or, or, or wanting a spouse or wanting your kids to develop a certain way. What he's, what he's saying is those fears, those things are very real. But the one who reigns over all of these things also just so happens to be your savior and your king and your friend. And so what he invites you to do is cling to him so that apprehension that weighs on your heart is transformed now into a sense of vigor and hope so you can look at the day with confidence because you belong to him and he belongs to you. And so as you look at the cross of Christ, the, the question that you should ask yourself is, is Christ there as the sacrificial lamb come once for my sins? Or is he the conquering king who's also come to conquer anything that could potentially oppress me? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is. And so to so many people, the, Jesus on the cross, he's nothing more, it's nothing more than a tragic story. And maybe for some of you here, Christ on the cross is nothing more than a historical event that doesn't really have any bearing on your present life. But Peter calls for you to have the eyes to see that it's precisely on the cross that Jesus is never more beautiful. It's on the cross where he suffered once for you to bring you into intimacy with God. And it's on the cross where he declared his victory over any darkness that threatens to assail you. Amen? Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I... Thank you so much for how amazing you are uh, in a single act. Uh, you can do so much for us. Uh, assure us of your love. Um, thank goodness we don't have to earn our standing before you every single day. I'd be a wreck if we had to, and you're, you displayed so much power. Um, so I thank you so much that we can rest in you, and I pray that we will be a church who holds to you and who holds to Jesus, not as someone who came and did some stuff in the past, um, but through someone who did the most world-changing, life-changing thing for us in the world and continues to be with us now by his Holy Spirit. And may that change everything about how we feel, think, and act toward others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.